and welcome to the sixth episode of the Climate History Podcast, which I record for the Climate History Network and historicalclimatology.com. Once again, I'm Dagmar de Groot, Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., a city that somehow seems a lot less sane than it did a couple months ago. I wonder what changed. Now, our websites are really about two things, past climate change and past climate science. So I'm thrilled to be joined today for the first time by a historian of science, the great James Fleming of Colby College. Professor Fleming is a Charles A. Dana Professor of Science, Technology, and Society at Colby College and a research associate at the Smithsonian Institution. He has earned degrees in astronomy, atmospheric science, and history, and his teaching bridges the sciences and the humanities. His research interests also involve the history of geophysical sciences, especially meteorology and climate change, and he's written uh, an enormous amount on the history of weather, climate technology, and the environment, uh, including social, cultural, and intellectual aspects. His books include Meteorology in America, 1800 to 1870, Historical Perspectives on Climate Change, The Calendar Effect, and most recently, Fixing the Sky, and just in 2016, from MIT Press, Inventing Atmospheric Science. Professor Fleming, thank you so much for joining us today. Now, now, uh, it's safe to say that uh, you're one of the most prominent names among historians of atmospheric science, and really among historians of science in general. And I'm wondering if, if you could tell us how you came to study the history of science, and why you gravitated towards the scientists of weather and climate. Oh, sure. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, I think the simple answer is that I almost died in a research airplane crash. <laughs> and uh, when we were picking up the debris, I figured I'd better engage with the atmosphere in some other way. I, I was flying in a, a University of Washington uh, research airplane, World War II vintage. Wow. Uh, we were coming back from a Pacific winter storm and uh, really, really bumpy. We flew only when it was bad. And uh, coming into the northern uh, Seattle Regional Airport, I noticed that the pine trees were at my eye level. And I said, oh, <laughs> and a downdraft pushed us into a pine tree. We had a particle collector under the uh, airplane and we sampled the top of the pine tree. But Another meter or so, we would have tipped over the plane and really crashed. So uh, I decided, <laughs> without the ability to get flight insurance and, and figuring that about 3,000 other people could solve the same equations I was trying, um, I decided to go into uh, history of science, which was uh, history and humanities were, were co-passions with me. Mm. And at, th at this point, I had a master's degree in atmospheric science, and I had some options, so I went to get my PhD in history of science. And then I've uh, sort of melded and fused and blended the two fields ever since. I, I don't think that story is ever going to be beat on this podcast, <laughs> to be honest. Well, that's absolutely true. I've, I've, I've never heard of something that dramatic in terms of why someone decided to study a field. That's, that's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Do you, do, you, do you think you need not uh, that kind of traumatic experience to, to start studying the history of science, but do you think you need a science background um, to be a historian of science? I mean, I know no, that's a bit controversial. Not at all. I, I, went to, I went to Princeton. 
uh, they admitted people with good, strong history degrees and good, strong accomplishments and sometimes degrees in science. Mm. And uh, we got together and worked together fairly well there for, you know, five or six years. And I got my Ph.D. and um, continued the, the, the quest. Okay. Um, has it helped you to have that kind of scientific background? <laughs> They have the history, have the what, the science background? Uh, yeah, yeah, the science, well, you know, it has helped you to oh, help you know, the humanities my, background. My advisor used to say that many of us are technically limited to doing sort of the, the physics of Newton or the biology of Darwin or mm. the whatever, you know, and uh, and so there is a, a, a move you can make, and we had other professors there who thought that we should take uh, advanced internships in science and learn more about the principles and the language and the the sociology of the lab. And, and so I think there is a lot of new good work that can be done. Uh, we just started a, a research discussion group here at Colby, where I work. It's called the Human Dimensions of Science. Mm. And we hope that some of the issues come out of the, uh, the technical lab sciences and then are discussed by uh, humanists and sociologists. And we broaden the discussion. We, we, meant, we mean it to be a big tent but uh, sure, I, how are you going to handle CRISPR or how are you going to handle even climate change if if mm -hmm. you don't know uh, much about the science at all? Uh, there's a danger, too, of getting too much into the weeds and constructing your narrative based on the construction of science, sort of a logical reconstruction. But uh, I've really tried to avoid that because I work with uh, with a lot of social networks and things like that. Okay. Do you think that it's a failure maybe of climate change communication that we haven't humanized the scientists enough? Is that, is, is that something that we can maybe improve? Oh, I don't know who we are, but I, I, hmm. write, I wrote a biography of Guy Stewart Callender, who was not well-known at all, hmm. and uh, he reinvented the anthropogenic uh, uh, greenhouse effect circa 1938 to about 1958. And I got into his archives. There was a preservation project to save his papers from uh, getting scattered around in uh, East Anglia. <laughs> and then we digitized them. And uh, and I wrote a book about his uh, scientific biography, not too much about his whole life. But uh, again, uh, I learned in graduate school that sometimes you're, you're salvaging and preservation projects that extend the, the range of the past are, are just as important or might in the long run, be more important than your interpretation. So I try to do both. I, I preserve and gather and, and get archives into their, their best safe homes. And, mm -hmm. I, uh, and then I always write whatever I write based on new archival material. Okay. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about fixing the sky. Oh, okay. Um, Fair we enough. Were, <laughs> uh, we were just fascinated uh, by this book. Um, and of course, both climate change and climate change denial seem to be intensifying uh, in this moment. So geoengineering, I think, is increasingly uh, a hot topic. Um, uh, can you briefly describe the history of geoengineering for us? Wow, that's a big task. <laughs> yes. um, read my book or look at my 2007 Wilson Quarterly article, which mm -hmm. briefly covers a lot of that. I, um, I think you have to be sincerely... Uh, uh, motivated uh, to to um, be in some way f fear fearful of climate change, to think that you're at the uh, absolute desperation, and to uh, to invest in um, in climate engineering. It's it's really a last gasp 
proposal. And, and really, uh, my, my take on it, and I've said this many times, is that it's, uh, it's not really engineering. It's uh, speculation. Mm. It's more or less back-of-the-envelope calculations that could lead to large-scale interventions by engineers into the climate system. Um, so geoengineering doesn't exist per se. There are techniques proposed, like shooting sulfates way up into the stratosphere or uh, capturing and storing for millennia all of the uh, carbon dioxide that's been emitted into the atmosphere. And there's a lot of crazy things in between. There, there's sort of Rube Goldberg techniques to uh, make artificial trees or to make the oceans bloom and turn them sort of green with, uh, with iron uh, put into them. And I, I've been to a lot of meetings, and, and at the time, uh, the modern uh, phase of this discussion, really, I was there in 2006 at the National Academy when Paul Kurtzen published his, uh, I call it his sort of Jonathan Swift paper on could, uh, could climate engineering be a possible policy option for climate change? Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of in the order of, uh, I have a solution for world hunger, you know, kind of uh, let's shoot sulfates up in the tropics and hope we can cool the earth off. And I, I took it pretty much as tongue-in-cheek, uh, challenging the community to come up with better responses on mitigation and adaptation. Uh, and then I got invited to a whole bunch of meetings. Uh, I had been doing a lot of writing about weather control that goes way back into the 1830s mm. and was flourishing quite a bit in the 1950s. And then I thought, wow, this climate control is very much the same kind of discourse. There's some sincere, but I thought relatively short-sighted scientists involved, and there's also some uh, charlatanism where people have some simple technique and they want to globalize it. And uh, so just recently, I was on the National Academy's study panel on climate intervention, and we called it intervention because we thought that engineering was too precise of a term for the whole field. We had uh, pretty much consensus on that. But you said the history. The history goes back to uh, uh, human hubris and intervention (laughs) into nature. It's rooted in, uh, I I rooted it in some Greek myths about intervention, Phaeton driving his father's sun chariot. uh, But in history, our our first national meteorologist was named James Espy. Hmm. And he actually proposed to make it rain all the way up and down the Appalachian Mountains from... uh, from Maine to Georgia by lighting giant fires. And uh, he, he was a, a, a meteorologist who really brought in the, uh, he was a good meteorologist in his own right, thinking about convection, but his simple principles were to make the convection and the heat stronger so that heated air rising, cooling, condensing could be enhanced by giant fires. So he, he wanted to light these fires on a Sunday afternoon every week and and keep the, uh, the the rivers and the canals open to the east. <laughs> uh, so th- it's and it's actually in the. Uh, he wrote a book called The Philosophy of Storms. He uh, he wrote about possibly making artificial volcanoes that were producing both heat and particles and and updrafts. And then uh, what do I find after Mount Pinatuba in the in the twentieth twenty first century? I found this discussion about um, artificial volcanoes. So wow. Uh, there's a connection. There, there's a, people would say weather's one thing, climate's another. But I always uh, 
would like to say that um, if you modify the weather systematically and regularly, say say you move every hurricane offshore or diminish its uh, intensity systematically, you you will eventually change the rainfall patterns and the climate. Yeah. And on the other hand, if you intervene in the Earth's heat budget in a massive way, if you could, you would then change the storm tracks and you change the weather. So they're they're really uh, a continuous scale of geophysical tinkering that includes, uh, and, and one of the big histories of it is this intervention in hurricanes, which mm. went on with Irving Langmuir and the General Electric Corporation and the military in 1947. They tried to move a, they tried to, to destroy a hurricane basically with dry ice and uh, didn't work out so well and then uh, Project Storm Fury was actually run by the, uh, the at the time the Weather Bureau the, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and they got into uh, it, uh, quite heated debates about whether you can actually change the uh, course or the intensity of the hurricane and then, of course, on top of all this was the difference between sort of the curiosity of civilian scientists and the militarization of, uh, of the Navy and uh, Air Force sponsors who wanted, in some cases, and I document this in my book, they wanted to weaponize the, the power of the, of the weather, the power of the uh, superstorms to, um, to accomplish their goals. So in a nutshell, we, we, there's been a lot of proposals. There's been a lot of talk about it. Uh, the Academy panel 2015, uh, we pretty much strongly recommended no uh, outdoor experimentation right now, uh, <laughs> or, or maybe ever. <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a line, I said, I, th I thought it should be done indoors between consenting adults, um, <laughs> perhaps on computer models, maybe laboratory experiments. But uh, if you're going to use the term geoengineering, we actually did it in... Um, 1962, there's a prehistory as well, but James Van Allen had discovered the magnetic uh, belts, the uh, Van Allen belts, mm -hmm. in 58. And uh, by 62, the uh, Atomic Energy Commission detonated an H-bomb in the magnetosphere to, uh, for military purposes, for civil defense, right at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I've written about that, too. But that, that was not for climate. That was just planetary, large-scale it's like, uh, like the opposite of nanotechnology, which is doing <laughs> things on the smallest scale. This is like doing things on the biggest scale. Mm. And uh, if you want just a final thought on this, uh, somebody once said, I think it was Martin Fogg, who wrote a book on terraforming. He said uh, the difference between uh, planetary terraforming and geoengineering is that geoengineering is so much harder because there's all these people in the way. <laughs> And, and uh, there's ju there was just just a NASA meeting last week on uh, how could we uh, change Mars to make it inhabitable. Right. Uh, all you need is an old envelope and a pencil, sharpen it up, and, and here's how we could do it. Let's get the launch date set. Uh, and so that kind of mindset, I'm, I'm really having a, a lot of, uh, I guess, it's a, a lot of, lot of uh, meetings, but also a bit of fun in sort of... Uh, Poking fun at the at that Rube Goldberg approach. <laughs> All you and do I, is bring a comet into the yeah. atmosphere of Mars, and you can get enough water droplets into that atmosphere to warm it up. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, and there's and there's rain making in the desert, and there's. Uh, you know all kinds of things to um, maybe there's even solar engineering to mm. 
to tinker with the solar. What could what could possibly go wrong? You know? <laughs> is is the problem on Earth? Is is the problem just the irreducible complexity of Earth's climate system? Or um... that's that's what I wrote about in the uh, in the newest book, the Inventing Atmospheric Science book, mm. which was the uh, the end of a quest to have perfect prevision, perfect forecasting, perfect almost Laplacean control over the future. Let make a the meteorologists of the early 20th century were pretty well set on making what I'd like to call a meteorological time machine where they could take the equations and the measurements and take time steps forward. And uh, they, there was no apparent limit until uh, until that program reached the, the moment of, uh, of Ed, when Ed Lorenz uh, identified the chaos limit of, uh, mm. of certainty. So we're dealing with a very complex planet with very many different uh, degrees of freedom, many variables. And uh, so I, I like to have my students uh, think about the two-body problem, which is an, a planet in orbit around a star, and it looks really pretty stable. There's, it would need a big shock to take it out of its orbit. <laughs> but then you can play with a three-body problem. There's a little computer game, I think it's called Orbits, and you can put three bodies in, at which point the whole thing goes haywire. And... Uh, Henri Poincaré knew that back in the 19th century, and Ed Lorenz brought those sort of insights and codified them in the computer age into meteorology and into the bigger field of, uh, of chaos uh, studies. Mm. And uh, it's a humbling thing to think that um, if you push over there, you're not going to get a result over here. It's not so much cause and effect as it's the immersion properties of a very complex system and... Uh, and that's where we're at. We're trying to find ways around that through forecasting by ensembles and by spaghetti plots and all kinds of stuff that the meteorologists are doing to get their models to uh, to line up. But uh, there's still a real mathematical limit. I, I call that the Gordian knot, the new Gordian knot of meteorology. <laughs> so when Rex... The Gordian knot was, um, was just the equations were very complex and the measurements were quite uncertain. And... Um, mm. The new Gordian knot is really more related to the chaos, uh, the chaotic behavior of the system. So when Rex Tillerson refers to climate change as essentially an engineering problem, there might be some problems with that statement. <laughs> probably so. Uh, probably so. I, think, I think there's a lot of problems with a lot of people's statements. And uh, engineering capital E, planetary capital P doesn't sit well with me mm. uh, because of this uh, Archimedean uh, lever principle where... If you tip the earth, you don't know where it would roll. Mm -hmm. And uh, small e engineering. Now, I'm not a Luddite. I'm, I'm in favor of clean air, good carburetors, uh, fuel switching, uh, quiet cities. Uh, I just don't think we can uh, treat climate as a static. Uh, it's not simply uh, warmer because of CO2 is not a thermostat, for example. It's a, it's a, it's a driving mechanism, but it's not a direct thermostat. Uh, also, uh, dynamics, um, climate dynamics, most people don't study that. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't understand why some era, er, you know, some periods are much warmer than others. Um, there's a great research field there, but most people don't uh, have any coursework in it. And so what we do say about climate is often very, uh, very simple and very basic. So small e engineering, yes. Um, you know, maybe some smart thermostats or some uh, some better insulation, you know, uh, 
some uh, some small engineering. We we will have a managed planet, but it's going to be managed by uh, by a group by by uh, evolution of the management, not by intervention. Um, I'm not sure how to phrase this question, so I'm just going to give it a shot. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the tension between individuals and and sort of these big governmental structures that you referred to uh, briefly earlier? Um, are there individuals who are pushing for weather control, and have there been in the past? And, and do they come into conflict with uh, with larger government structures? What is the relationship there? Well, sure. Some some of them have actually been uh, uh, funded by the government to go out and and make it happen. There's a there's a command and control thing where the bureaucrats might want to uh, make it rain, but nature won't cooperate. Um, and and in history, uh, it turns out that. <clears throat> Uh, almost every new technology known to humans have been has been thought to be applicable to weather control or climate control. Hmm. And I'm, th I'm thinking of let's let's take sort of the the 1940s, uh, 45 through 60, the early the early Cold War. Uh, we had nuclear uh, weapons. People proposed cracking the uh, Antarctic ice cap, uh, towing icebergs. Uh, we had computers, and one of the first proposals was to make a perfect computer forecast that was down to the instant, down to the, to the locale, and, and was just so, uh, so dramatic that you could predict the weather at any point in the future and deploy uh, sort of rapid deployment force to go out and possibly intervene in it. Uh, we had rockets, and they were talking about taking um, payloads like chlorine and bromine up into the stratosphere to destroy ozone uh, uh, to make uh, for various purposes, some were scientific and some were military. And so we had, we had the whole panoply going from uh, the nuclear age through the satellite age. Tyros, the first weather satellite, was launched in 1960. And, and this, this sort of uh, quiver of technologies, these arrows that people could shoot at the climate uh, or the weather, um, uh, they made they gave people a certain extra boost in their in their feelings of power and their and their omniscience about it. Yeah. Omnipotence, I guess you could say. We still we still have all those technologies. We still have nukes. We still have computers. We still have rockets. We still have satellites. And I think we still have this attitude that yeah, uh, it's an engineering problem. And if we ever got in big trouble, we'd just build a Dyson sphere around the Earth or <laughs> tweak the sun somehow if it starts to go bad. Or, yeah. You know, and, and the, the human future is to do what NASA had another meeting about three years ago down at uh, Orlando, so like the Disney World meeting on uh, going to other planets. It was called the 100 year starship. And I thought, mm. wow, the great STS. I, I, I teach uh, science and society is through, through, through sort of the history of science and technology. And uh, I thought, wow, what a great meeting to um, to think about. Uh, not not so much the. Uh, the propulsion devices of these rockets, but how would you make a life support system that could go through uh, interplanetary space? We couldn't make Biosphere 2 work out in the Arizona desert. And uh, if, if, if your uh, life support system springs a leak or has a problem, you can't open it up to the fresh air of Arizona. You open it up to space. And so that's a very big issue. And NASA, you know, they're looking forward. They're funding trips to... Uh, conferences, they're giving actual grants to think uh, 25, 50, 100, maybe uh, who, who knows how far ahead yeah. of what could be possible. And then some of them come out to be more informed by 
um, the Goldberg side than by the by the uh, humanists. Uh, so I, I try to put, place myself somewhere in the on the on the edge of that and uh, listen to their proposals, but then provide a kind of a uh, a humanist uh, counterpoint. Oh, that's that's fascinating. So so there is a role for the humanities in these kinds of debates then about uh, creating these closed ecologies in space or on other planets. Yeah, there, we, I'm in a community. I mean, it's partly space history. Uh, there's people right down the street from you at an Air and Space Museum, and yeah. people that they give grants. Uh, some of them, you know, some of the studies are rather gearheaded and rather uh, standing in awe of. Uh, of great men and great uh, accomplishments, <laughs> like astronaut history, but other uh, others are, are really quite sophisticated, and and we we have a a, a graduate uh, fellowship in the history of atmospheric issues, broadly defined to include oceans and glaciers and anything geophysical, and so we, we've had fifteen of these uh, graduate fellowships now since 1999, and um, about half of them have. Uh, have tenure in history departments. Fascinating. Yeah, um, it's a great group. Yeah, that must be. That, that sounds like wonderful research. Um, okay, getting back um, <laughs> to geoengineering, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, militarization, uh, the, the relationship between the military, and actually we can talk about inventing atmospheric science as well, um, the relationship between the military and atmospheric scientists in the 20th century? Right. Well, I, I, I decided pretty long ago that I, I had to be somewhat of a historian of military affairs if I was going to do this history of science and technology with the weather. Um, it's not just surplus airplanes and, and, but they're, they're, and, and people who had uh, military experience coming into the field. But this goes, this goes way back. And uh, in, in U.S. history, I found it a very prominent for example, with the the first uh, national climatological network run by the uh, army uh, army surgeons, the uh, the uh, medical department of the U.S. Army was uh, surveying the weather to keep their um, their forts in communication with the Washington mm-hmm. and to uh, to provide sort of a, a environmental ethological. Uh, survey of why uh, troops more more troops were dying in the frontier from exposure than they were dying from hostile uh, uh, interactions or uh, engagements. And so from that, I, I, I finished my first book. was uh, It ended in 1870 with the, the building of networks and uh, systems of observation. I'm still interested in that. But then I got into this first weather service, which was not just about the weather. In fact, it was anything else but the weather. It was the U.S. Army Signal Corps using telegraphy to chase and, and monitor storms that were coming across the country. And so they set up their telegraph networks in the 1870s to sort of emulate what they had done in the Civil War, which was the monitoring of Confederate troop movements. They considered storms as the enemy, and they were coming from west to east mostly, so they could telegraph ahead where the storms were coming. And then they got involved in... Um, the striking workers, the 1877 railroad strikes, the Weather Bureau monitored those storms. It was very, very cutting edge like today. It was like uh, Homeland Security for the strikes. And uh, <laughs> I, I wrote a paper once called What Did President Hayes Know and When Did He Know It? Oh, wow. And it was t- and this instant telegraphy come from the West Coast, from Pittsburgh, from the railroad strikes. 
there were Indian uprisings on the frontier, and the Signal Corps would be involved in building special telegraph lines to the frontier. Uh, and there was also uh, a study of the locust uh, swarms and sort of an entomological meteorology. So really what they were, they were interested in was information, and they were interested in threats to national security in the 1870s. And that was, so it wasn't thermometer barometer history. It was, it was about networks and challenges that the, the country was facing and the elites were planning to respond. Um, and, and so th th that was military. The first weather bureau of the U.S. was run by the military from 1870 to 1891. Uh, there was weather modification, cloud making, first of all, smokescreen making. Uh, there was then cloud dissipation studies. There was rain making. This came out of World War II. Um, in, my, in my Fixing the Sky book, I talk about the British program to make uh, artificial cloud uh, fog uh, lifting. Uh, the, you know, the British uh, airfields were full of uh, marine fogs and aviators were going over to Germany, coming back sick, tired, shot up, out of fuel almost. And they would crash into England when they couldn't find the airfields at night. So they took a, a very large allocation of the Petroleum Warfare Department. Uh, Churchill uh, uh, approved this. And they, would, they poured it in trenches around the airfields and they would light it uh, they actually made special burners so that the airline airplanes could see the the flaming uh, airfield in the distance, and then they would land, and then they would turn the flames down. So it's kind of like landing on a on a lighted, heated airplane or airport, uh -huh. which is a brute force way. It actually worked. If you want to use the works in quotes, it would actually heat up the air, and like your like your uh, hair dryer in the bathroom, it would clean off the mirror for a moment. It would clear off the fog, and as soon as you turned the burners off, the the fog would set back in. So uh, it was a military thing. It was in it was somewhat effective during the Battle of the Bulge, where the the RAF and the Allies could fly, but the Germans couldn't. Mm. And oh. so then it got then then when Langmuir, Irving Langmuir, Nobel laureate in chemistry, um, proposed that you could control um, thunderstorms, you could control hurricanes, you could make it rain on demand. In the, in the 1950s, um, the military really perked up on that, and they, they were serious attempts to try to weaponize the weather, weaponize clouds. One, one proposal even had a, a jet airplane with, with a cannon and silver iodide bullets that would strip the cloud, you know, to try to make it, make it more angry and, and make it more thunderstorm. <laughs> and then, then, we get all the, then we get up to this thing of the H-bomb, the... Uh, the project Starfish Prime that was shot off in, 18, in 1962 in the over the tropics. Uh, mm. So, so there, there's a long-term uh, military uh, interest. Uh, there's there's a way to do this history by looking at uh, sort of the Pentagon Papers of uh, of meteorology. Fascinating. So it must seem pretty odd that right now, you know, according to uh, what we know about. Or think we know about Trump's budget that you know fifty four billion dollars are going to be added to the Pentagon's budget at the expense in part of uh, NOAA and the EPA and maybe Earth Science at NASA. You know this tight relationship between uh, our efforts to understand weather and the military seems to be fraying a little bit, or perhaps not. Well, we might never know. the uh, The deniability factor is really big, and 
Mm. I don't have a security clearance, and if I did one, it wouldn't be high enough to figure this out. So uh, we had a film made called uh, Owning the Weather. It was a New York film company was was filming this, and the, the issue came up about there was a project. Uh, it was called uh, Motor Pool or Popeye. It was in in the Vietnam War to to try to make the clouds rain more over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Mm. And literally nobody in the in the government or the military except the president and secretary of defense and uh, maybe one other person knew what was really going on. They had a cover story. Um, and so I was telling the story on camera about Project Popeye and the Vietnam cloud seeding. And uh, eventually it came out with, uh, with in the U.S. Senate and there was hearings. It became part of the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and then they they cut from my narrative to a a, a young U.S. Air Force uh, air weather officer, and it was a perfect perfect slice because the, the the fellow was saying, to the best of my knowledge, we're not using weather control in the military. And then he said he paused for a minute and said, to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> so uh, the cover the deniability the the. The ability to find this out, you'd probably have to become elected Senate. Uh, you'd have to get elected president, or uh, or be the Secretary of Defense to figure out what's really going on. Wow, um, that's fascinating. So I, I use history. I said, "What's going on? I don't know, but I know what had gone on from the declassified materials." Yeah, and I know that uh, this was being done in the eighteen. Um, 90s. This was being done in the 1940s. This was being done in the 1960s. And by the way, uh, maybe the pattern holds up, but I don't know. Huh. Well, after all, your email signature is uh, everything is unprecedented if you don't study history. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's what. That's what. That's my motto. Yeah. No, I, that came up at a that came up at a big meeting of uh, climate engineers, and they were saying we've never had a, a challenge like this. It's unprecedented. And I said. Yeah kind of offhand I said everything's unprecedented if you don't study history and it, it kind of struck a nerve people laughed <laughs> and they realized it was true yeah. uh, and uh, it would take you you know you don't have to become a historian you can spend a couple hours reading some stuff you can read read the Wilson quarterly article in about 20 minutes you can read my book in about three or four hours and uh, and pretty soon then you start to realize that humans have done a lot of things uh, to intervene and to try to control, uh, it's, it's sort of the UPC of science, understanding, prediction, and control. Mm. And often you jump quickly to control before you fully understand the system. Um, there's a fellow, a big uh, climate modeler at, uh, and public policy fellow at MIT, Ron Prin. Mm. He had a nice line. He said, uh, how, can you, uh, how can you engineer a system you don't understand? And I, that's one of my basic claims, is that, that we need much more uh, fundamental research, not just in nature, but in human nature. Mm-hmm. And we need to approach this with a bit more humility. Yeah, so maybe cutting uh, some of these government agencies is not the right approach. <laughs> um, now, early on, you, you, you write, very early on, you write uh, in Inventing Atmospheric Science that this is a book about the future, uh, as your atmospheric researchers. Imagine it in the first six decades of the 20th century. So um, I have to ask, did these scientists accurately anticipate their future? And uh, does that tell us anything about how accurately maybe present-day atmospheric scientists predict our future? Huh, wow. 
Yeah. Uh, well, Wilhelm Birkness was really the eminence grease of the, the Bergen School, the, the fronts and air masses stuff that we still use today to talk about the weather. And uh, he thought that he was um, he was drilling a he made a metaphor that he's he's drilling a tunnel through the Alps and he's made the first strokes on that tunnel and started to chip away at the rock and someday there would be a high speed highway through the Alps and that that came true he he was referring metaphorically to uh, being able to compute the weather uh, faster than it happens. Uh, so he had the equations. He had a principle to measure the whole atmosphere, know the equations of motion, and then calculate the next time step. The problem was it took about 11 years or so to calculate the next time step, and it took about you know a day for the weather to change. So he saw the vision that someday maybe there would be a uh, a way to to mechanize this. You know, there there, there was early early computing was a was not uh, mechanical in those days. It was done by a, a batch of uh, calculated people. Mm. So he, he did see the future in a way. He lived until 51. He lived until 1951. So he would have seen the early experiments with the uh, ENIAC computer and the original equations of motion. And so he would have seen that that part of it was right. But, but he also had uh, lectures from Poincaré and Paris in his, in his youth and he was aware that there was a three-body problem lurking under these equations. And so he wasn't, he said, he, he, uh, it, it almost leaped off the page when I was reading his early paper in 1904. He said, what we need is a sufficiently accurate measurement of the atmosphere and a sufficiently accurate understanding of the equations to make a forecast. Mm -hmm. And the word sufficiently just jumped off the page. It wasn't italicized or anything, but it seemed to be important to him that he was saying, yeah, we and with his Bergen school, he could do uh, a day. Uh, eventually, they moved it to three days. Uh, if the weather is nice, if you have a nice uh, sunny day, uh, chances are that might persist for a while. So you can sometimes forecast the weather for a week. But if the weather's changing rapidly, you can't even do it very well for a day. Mm. So uh, it turns out that this is very important in World War II because the Anzio invasion was a high-pressure system over Italy. And the forecaster, who was a Norwegian, was able to just say, let's go. Let's get the gear ready. And in another day or so, two or three days, we can go. But the same guy was at uh, D-Day in, in the, the Normandy invasion. And it was very It was changing by the hour. And so there are some situations where I, I, like to, uh, they, I like to say sometimes the atmosphere is really stable, <laughs> really well behaved, and you can forecast it under those conditions. And other times it's so uh, jumpy that you can't really do that. So uh, as far as forecasting, um, he, the second protagonist in my uh, inventing book is Carl Rossby. I, I just wrote a, a little biosketch of him for Physics Today. Hmm. But, but Rossby, uh, he was interested in the, in the fronts and air masses and was a real player there. But he saw the real action going on up above his head. That is at about... Uh, about uh, you know five or six thousand uh, feet up uh, and higher than that ten thousand feet there, there's there's a layer up there where the the big waves they call them Rossby waves now mm -hmm. and they circle the planet and they make the weather changes he thought if you could forecast those things rather than the surface weather you'd be in business and this is the era of more air aviation 
Uh, he founded the MIT uh, Meteorology Department. He had, they bought their own airplane. Uh, they launched the radio balloons. Uh, they drew maps of the upper atmosphere. And meteorology became much more uh, geophysical than it was local through Rossby. Okay. And much more technologized. That is, you had to have airplanes. You had to have radio-equipped balloons. In fact, the, to study meteorology, you had to take a course or two in electrical engineering. And so the, the, this is about 1930s uh, into the 50s. And then, as I mentioned before, you started to get other sorts of needs, uh, the ability to run a computer, the ability to work with a satellite re data retrieval by the 1960s. And so uh, what they were forecasting was that this Gordian knot of complexity hmm. was not going to be untied for perfect forecasting, but it was going to be cut. Hmm. Kind, of, kind of like Alexander cut the Gordian knot. It's, 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 the metaphor was, uh, uh, Rusby said, he said, he said, technology is not untying this knot, it's helping us cut into it. I see. And, uh, then, you get, then you get things like, you know, you, you might have your phone and you could look and see if there's uh, radar, uh, if, if there are any green radar blotches over Georgetown, you probably want to. <laughs> you do this thing called now casting. Hmm. So actually, uh, if you get away from forecasting and provision and you start to use the now casting, that is re relatively, you know, very close to real time and perfect. You could look at what the radar is bouncing off of. I used to use, I was in sabbatical in DC. I used to use it to run between thunder showers to get back <laughs> instead of an umbrella. You know? <laughs> That's a really cool idea. Actually, I should try that. Yeah. I, I was uh, just a kilometer away from the apartment. And so, um, there are all kinds of new technologies now. The, some of the leading edge stuff is crowdsourcing, hmm. where your automobile is uh, better equipped than lots of the old uh, special vehicles that used to do city micrometeorology research. Uh, your carburetor is pressure controlled, and your wind and, and and there's a data sourcing. You can you can actually sign up your car into the into the uh, the, the, the uh, Internet of Things, and the meteorologists can use your car for for data points around the city for air pollution, carburation, wow. pressure, temperature. Uh, and there's other things like that, too. Uh, there's even a, a health Internet of Things where the new, um, the new asthma inhalers can have a uh, sort of a, a, a GPS and a signal processor on them, and, and you can volunteer your health to say, here's when and where I puffed my inhaler. And that provides a real-time map of, uh, of health stresses from uh, possible urban air pollution. Talk about big data. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I mean, that's where it's at. It, it's, if you wanted to do an atmospheric science degree, uh, sure, you could take an undergraduate meteorology course, but you, you really don't have to. You have to, to get into the science side, you have to be into, into the physics and the computer science and the data processing and stuff like that. Uh, and, and I'm arguing now that we also need to have that historical, social, uh, ethical uh, sense of things too, because of, it's it's not just about it's not these are not just physical problems we're facing, but they're they're human uh, problems. They're it's the human's condition rather than just the science, or the engineering of it. Well, I'm I'm certainly with you on that. And uh, I wish I could ask you more questions, but you have to go. Uh, I just want to finish off with one question. That is, um, what are you currently working on? Great. I thought you'd never ask. I started <laughs> that. 
I finished, I finished inventing atmospheric science on uh, February 1st of 2016. And it came out. We had a nice book launch. And I waited a day. I waited till February 2nd to, uh, to pitch my next project to my editor. <laughs> and uh, it's going to be <clears throat> a book uh, tentatively called Breaking Through the Clouds, hmm. uh, Joanne Simpson and the Tropical Atmosphere. It's, it's the story of a, of a, a woman scientist who, uh, when she got started at Chicago in 1945, there were no women in the field. Mm-hmm. And uh, through her career, not that she promoted this, but that she exemplified it, now there's about 50% in the field. Uh, mm-hmm. When she started in tropical meteorology in World War II, there, there was a great need for the tropical campaign, Burma and all that. Uh, the southern routes, and uh, and uh, and then there was need for uh, forecasting for the bomb shots in the Pacific and the tests, but there was no uh, ability to do that. And so she started at that level, making little cloud models, and flying in airplanes and arrays of airplanes, and ended up as the as the chief scientist for the tropical rainfall measurement mission, the uh, the satellite that that orbits the tropics and uses a radar to look down into the tropical atmosphere. So it's kind of like going from zero to 60 and from zero to 60 over that 60-year period, both for women and both for tropical. So the interest in the, the press was interested in a fusion book that brings together her life story um, together with the, uh, the understanding of the tropical atmosphere. So it's a history of really two things, but Tropical atmosphere as seen through the the, uh, the the life and career of Joanne Simpson. Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to read it, and I'm uh, I can't wait to assign it to my students too. Actually, because often, um, you know, these stories about uh, women are in short supply when it comes to uh, the history of meteorology and atmospheric science. So I, I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, tremendous. I'll uh, make sure you get on the distribution list. Fantastic. And then we'll have to invite you back here to talk about it uh, when it comes out. I'd be pleased. Thank you very much for that. Well, thank you very much for joining us.